0: One of the most common statements a parent makes throughout a day may be the statement, clean up your mess. If you are a parent, you need no explanation. If allowed to do so, children go from one thing to another, leaving behind them a wake of debris. That is why parents can end up sounding like a broken record Johnny, clean up your mess. Susie, clean up your mess. Timmy, clean up your mess. Tammy, clean up your mess. I suppose that's just a part of parenting. The Apostle Paul was a parent of sorts. He was a spiritual parent. And there were times when he found it necessary to say the same kind of thing spiritually to people in the churches with which he worked. He had to tell them basically to clean up their mess. And nowhere is that more prominent than In the book we come to in this message, the book of 1 Corinthians. Please turn there with me as we uh, prepare to do our survey together of this great and important book of the New Testament. To show you how Paul functioned as a spiritual parent, look at what he said in chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 14. He says to the Corinthians, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children I warn you. That sounds like a parent, doesn't it? Paul was indeed a loving spiritual parent. He says in the very next verse, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. In other words, Paul was their spiritual parent. And when he wrote this letter to them, his message was straightforward and basic. In essence, what he said to them was, clean up your mess. That was his message. Skip down to verse 21, where he says to them, here in this uh, same context, uh, what do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or in love and a spirit of gentleness. You see, the church in Corinth was a mess. They had divisions and disunity and moral problems. They didn't understand marriage from a biblical perspective. They didn't understand how to deal with differences of opinion regarding food offered to idols. They were very disorderly in their worship. They didn't understand the doctrine of bodily resurrection. They didn't understand the issue of giving to the Lord's work. They were a mess in more ways than one. So as a spiritual parent, Paul wrote to them to encourage them to clean up their mess. As we usually do before we jump into a book itself, I want us to understand the background and the circumstances surrounding this letter. During Paul's second missionary journey, he came to the city of Corinth and he established a church there. That is, he led people to faith in Christ. He presented the gospel. Those who believed were baptized, became part of the church in Corinth. The church was established. He stayed there for 18 months, according to Acts 18. While he was there, many, many Gentiles from this city came to faith in Christ. And even a few Jewish people became believers in Jesus. That was his second missionary journey. During Paul's third missionary journey, while he was at Ephesus, he received a report that unrest and problems were plaguing the church in Corinth. Therefore, he wrote what we would call chapters 1 through 6 of this letter. But before he could send those chapters to the city of Corinth and the church there, three men came to him at Ephesus from the church in Corinth, And they brought with them a letter filled with questions concerning issues that were bothering the people in the church. We know that from what Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 16. So, chapters 7 through 16 were written to answer those questions turned into him or submitted to him by the three men who came from the church at Corinth to the city of Ephesus. Then, as a unit, the entire letter was sent to the church at Corinth. The purpose of the letter was to provide instruction and correction concerning wrong Christian doctrine and conduct. This letter is extremely practical in nature because it deals with so many daily life issues that all Christians face, regardless of culture, regardless of circumstance. This is just sort of the the Christianity in blue jeans sort of letter. It helps us understand some of the problems in this church if we know about the city in which it was located. The city of Corinth, and we know this from a number of historical sources, the city of Corinth had a population of 600,000 to 700,000 people. The reputation of the city was one of extreme immorality. In fact, there was a mountain there known as Acro-Corinth, That had a huge temple on it to the goddess Aphrodite, which was the goddess of beauty. This temple had 1,000 female religious prostitutes who served as priestesses of the temple. In order for a man to enter the temple, he had to have sexual relations with one of these prostitutes. The condition, the moral condition of this city was so bad... That the word Corinthiadzimai, which literally just, and originally just meant to act like a Corinthian, Corinthiazimai, it eventually came to mean to practice fornication. That was the environment in which this church existed. Many of the people in the church had been saved out of that environment and been saved out of that lifestyle. Look at chapter 6, and we see this fact coming through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The city of Corinth was loaded with those kinds of people. Does that mean that there was no hope for any of them? No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Many of the people in this church used to be in one of those categories mentioned in verses 9 and 10. But when they placed faith in Jesus Christ, when they gave their lives to Him, He saved them. He cleansed them. He forgave them. He made them righteous in the sight of God. He changed them. They were no longer fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, etc. They were ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-sodomites, etc. They had been forgiven and changed by the matchless grace of Christ. That's one of the most marvelous things about the Lord Jesus Christ. When we turn to him, he makes sure that our past is a past that is past. That's what had happened in the lives of the Corinthians. But sadly, some of them were beginning to be influenced again by their surroundings. Surely you know this can happen in the Christian life. God saves us and changes us, but if we're not careful, we can slip back into our old ways, into what used to grip us, what used to have hold on us. That's why Paul says what he does over in chapter 10. He says in chapter 10, verse 12, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a warning we all need. When we get to the point where we think we are no longer susceptible to sin, we're in deep trouble. When we get to the point to where we are allowing ourselves to be pulled back into what we used to be or influenced by our, our surroundings that used to have a grip on us, then we're in deep trouble. That may have been what happened in the lives of some of the Corinthians. They may have gotten to the point where they felt like they they didn't need to be careful. They didn't need to keep their guard up. They didn't need to, to have discernment. And so they they begin to slip. They begin to lapse. They begin to be influenced by their past, by their surroundings. As a result, their lives and their church became a mess. And that's why Paul writes this letter. This is a fairly simple letter to outline. You could almost divide up into just two categories. If you want to divide a little further, maybe into four. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 are the introductory greeting, if you want to separate that section out. Then there are two main sections in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 6, verse 20 is a series of reproofs because of problems in the church. Paul reproved them because of the problem of divisions, He he reproved them because of undisciplined sin. He reproved them because some of them were taking other Christians to court before unbelievers. He reproved them because of immorality. That's what chapter 1, verse 10 through chapter 6, verse 20 is all about. That's the first major section. The next main section is answers to questions sent by the Corinthians. And that goes from chapter 7, verse 1 all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. They asked questions about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage, about singleness, about widows remarrying. They asked questions about food offered to idols. They asked questions about Christian liberty. They asked questions about issues in public worship, such as a head covering for women and proper behavior at the Lord's table. They asked questions about spiritual gifts, prophecy, tongues, etc. They asked questions about bodily resurrection. They asked questions about giving to the Lord's work. So that's what chapter 7, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 4, is about. It's the second major section of the letter. And then the final section, again, if you want to separate it off, the final section of the letter is chapter 16, verses 5 through 24, in which Paul discusses various personal matters. He tells about his plans to visit them. He gives some instructions about Timothy and Apollos. He gives some final exhortations. Then he sends along some personal greetings. So that's what this letter is all about. A very brief introduction, a very brief conclusion, two major sections. Reproofs about unacceptable doctrine and behavior, and then lots of answers to questions sent from the Corinthians to Paul at Ephesus. So that is background. Let's go back to chapter 1 and do a survey of this very important letter of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul opens the letter in a way that was customary, and usual for letters written during his time, he opens with a salutation. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That was Paul's greeting. That was his opening salutation. He acknowledged the fact that in spite of their problems, those who truly knew Christ were sanctified positionally, and they were saints positionally. That was their position. God had set them apart for His use, and God had made them holy in their standing before Him. But the problem was that even though that was their position— It wasn't their practice. They weren't living up to their position. In practice, they weren't useful to God because they weren't living holy lives. So he reminds them here in the opening part of the letter, he reminds them of their position to remind them of why God had saved them. And Paul was thankful that God had saved them. Verse 4, he says, I thank my God always concerning you For the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called, into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So God had called them to himself and saved them, but they were not living lives pleasing to him. This is a good place to stop and clarify an extremely important issue in doctrine and in the Christian life. The issue to which I am referring is the difference between our standing and our state. Our standing in Christ and our state in Christ. Now there's nothing magical about those terms, so another way to put it would be to refer to our position in Christ and our practice in Christ. Whichever terms you prefer. Standing in state, position in practice, they're used the, in the same way. Regardless of which terms you use, it is critical to understand the distinction in what what is being said. If you have received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then your standing in Christ, your position in Christ, is one of absolute, perfect righteousness. You have been forgiven of all your sin, past, present, and future. You are holy in God's sight. You are completely accepted in Christ. There is nothing you can do to be more accepted before God. When God looks at your position, when God looks at your standing, He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. That is your standing, or your position. But when it comes to your state, or your practice, whichever term you prefer, you can be living a life that is pleasing to the Lord, or one that is not pleasing to the Lord. A lot of Christians do not understand these distinctions. Let me say again, there is absolutely nothing we can do to be more accepted before God because Christ has done it all. But that doesn't mean that every Christian always lives in such a way so as to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, any parent, any decent parent, understands this distinction because you know that you love your children unconditionally. There is nothing they can do to cause you to love them anymore. There is nothing that they can do to cause uh, you to be more accepting of them in the sense of embracing them as your children. However, that doesn't mean that the decisions they make, the way they live, etc., are always pleasing to you. But as a parent, you have a very clear distinction in your mind. The the clear distinction between unconditional love and yet things that please you and do not please you. So the Christian life, the the parallels are, are the same. It is possible to be holy in your position before God, but not holy in your practice in life. Let me say it another way. It is possible to be accepted before God, totally, fully accepted before God, but not pleasing to God in the way you are living your life. That's what was going on with the Corinthians. Here in these opening verses, Paul reminds them of their perfect standing and position in Christ. He calls them saints. He says they were enriched by Christ, that he will confirm them to the end, that they'll be blameless. This is their position. But now, after that opening reminder he is going to tell them that the way they are living is not pleasing to the Lord. So be very careful to understand this distinction between standing and state, or position and practice. Paul has just talked about their position. Now he is going to talk about their practice, which was not good at all. Their position was perfect. Their standing was perfect. Their practice or their state wasn't good at all. The first issue that Paul deals with is the issue of divisions and disharmony and disunity. He says in verse 10, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For... It has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Here Paul introduces this issue, which was a problem in this church, and he deals with this subject all the way through the end of chapter 4. It is a long section. Chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And he tells them in this section that their divisions were indications of their spiritual immaturity. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Paul says you are behaving in such a carnal manner, such a fleshly manner, you're acting just like unsaved people. And this statement here really hits us between the eyes because it's a reminder to us that when there are divisions and disharmony and disunity, then that is an indication that at least some of the people involved, if not all the people involved, are spiritually immature and behaving carnally. So Paul addresses this issue in chapter 1, verse 10, All the way through chapter 4, verse 21. The next problem he addresses is undisciplined sin. According to chapter 5, there was a man in this church who was living in an immoral relationship with his stepmother, and the church at Corinth said nothing about it, did nothing about it. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine the scandal? a man living in an openly immoral relationship with his stepmother, and the church at Corinth, the leaders, the people, did absolutely nothing. In fact, from what Paul says, not only did they refuse to do anything about it, they actually prided themselves that they were so tolerant that they could allow it to go on. By contrast, Paul told them that they ought to address this issue, confront this issue, and discipline the man out of the church. He says in chapter 5, verse 5, he says... Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Boasting about how tolerant they were. Not only did Paul say they should discipline the man out of the church. He also told them not to fellowship with the man. Down in verse 11 he says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. As anyone who names the name of Christ, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a viler or a drunkard, or an extortioner, no, not even to eat with such a person. In the first century, the culture of the first century, eating with a person was, one of the, uh, was an act of intimate fellowship. So Paul is saying, why would you have intimate fellowship with someone who names the name of Christ and lives a blatantly, flagrantly contradicting, contradictory life, Lifestyle. You are sending the message to this man that it's okay for him to name the name of Christ and live this way. And it's not okay. Your perspective of this, Corinthians, is all wrong. And by the way, this still applies today, beloved. Don't excuse your disobedience in this area by saying that you are showing love to someone who lives like this. If you are sending the message to him or her that it is okay to name the name of Christ and live such a flagrantly contradictory life. That is not love. That is not biblical love. That is sending the wrong message to such a person. Then in chapter 6, Paul deals with the problem of Christians taking one another to court before unbelievers. What a terrible testimony that was. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In the early part of this sixth chapter, Paul rebuked them for shaming the name of Christ in that way. And then in verses 9 through 20, he rebuked them for engaging in sexual immorality. He closes this chapter in verse 18 by saying, Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside his body, but he who commits commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you are bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Here in this sixth chapter, Paul explains that sexual immorality is such an awful sin for a Christian because, now catch this, because it joins the indwelling Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit in that illicit behavior. Think about that. Do you think that the lord jesus christ is uncomfortable being joined in illicit immorality obviously do you think the indwelling holy spirit is uncomfortable being joined in illicit immorality absolutely and that's what paul explains here in verses 10 or verses 9 through the end of this chapter now as we come to chapter 7 we turn a corner and come to the next major section of this letter. This is the section in which Paul answers the questions that were sent to him by the Corinthians. Chapter 7 deals with questions about marriage. In the early verses of the chapter, Paul explains that sexual intimacy is not unspiritual for a husband and wife. It seems rather obvious that the Corinthians, because of their immoral background, had sort of brought that perspective forward into their marriage, and they assumed that there was something unspiritual or something immature about a husband and a wife and enjoying a husband and wife enjoying physical intimacy within the confines of marriage. And Paul explains, No, no, that is contrary to God's design. That is an inaccurate perspective to say that sexual intimacy is unspiritual, it's inappropriate, uh, it's unhealthy, or whatever their thinking was coming from their distorted background. That's the early verses of chapter 7. Then in verses 8 through 16, he explains circumstances in which it is permissible for Christians to get remarried. This would refer to those whose spouses died, or maybe there was divorce, etc. And then in the rest of the chapter, he deals with other issues related to marriage, Uh, What about widows? What about a father giving his virgin daughter in marriage under what circumstances? And all these issues that the Corinthians had asked about related to marriage, singleness, widowhood, etc. That's chapter 7. In chapter 8, he begins to discuss a major issue in the life of the first century church, and that was the subject of meat offered to idols. This is one that most Christians, at least Western Christians, have difficulty relating to. But here's what would happen. In many of the larger cities, there were pagan temples in honor of false gods. And in these temples, it was common to have animal sacrifices made on behalf of or given to these gods. After the sacrifice, since there was nothing wrong with the meat. I mean, think about a a slab of meat, an animal being butchered and then the meat taken and set before a wooden idol. What does that do to the meat? Nothing. What's the idol? The idol is really nothing. So since there was nothing wrong with the meat, it was brought out from the temple or out to the storefront, out to the, street, uh, out to the street, and it was sold on the marketplace. Often this was in very close proximity. The offering to the God would be in the temple. It would be brought right out to the market, right out on the street side curb, and then the meat was sold. Many times this meat was sold at a discount To move it quickly. So Christians, wanting to be good stewards, would buy this meat. They would buy it at a reduced rate. They figured it was good stewardship. Nothing wrong with the meat. What does it matter that someone placed it before a wooden idol of some kind? Now, as you might imagine, some Christians felt this was okay. Being good stewards. What's an idol? Piece of wood. It's nothing. Others felt it was wrong to eat this meat that had been offered idols. And you can understand that perspective. Why would a Christian buy something that had been offered to idols? You can see both sides of this. So this created a dilemma in the early church, a huge dilemma. Paul addresses it here in, in 1 Corinthians. He addresses the same issue in the book of Romans. Now Paul explained here in Corinthians that it was okay to buy this meat and eat it. An idol is nothing. It doesn't defile it. You're not, you're not uh, committing idolatry. But he does say it should not be allowed to become a stumbling block to those whose consciences were bothered by it. I mean, think if you were saved out of idolatry, saved out of idol worship, saved out of these temples which carried out these practices, and then you saw one of your Christian brothers or sisters eating meat had been offered in, uh, to an idol in the very temple that you were saved out of. You could understand that being a dilemma. So Paul says, listen, in and of itself, it's okay It's okay to eat the meat, Aphrodite. It's okay to buy it and eat it, but don't do it if you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be a stumbling block to those whose consciences are bothered by it. That's chapter 8, and that leads Paul into a discussion about the issue of Christian liberty. Paul explained that there are times when we need to be willing to set aside our liberties and freedoms if they cause others to sin against their own consciences by following our example. He says in chapter 9, verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews, to those who were under the law as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law, to those who were without law as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are with all, without law, to the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That was Paul's approach. He lived to reach others and build up others, so he often set aside his liberties for that purpose. That's what chapter 9 is all about. Let me pause here just quickly to mention something, because this is a very contemporary issue. I find it ironic that there are many Christians today who use these words of Paul in the exact opposite way of the way he intended them. What I mean is there are a lot of Christians today that say, listen, I become all things to all people. That is, I go to the strip club to try to win the strippers, and I go to this place, you know, I go to, I do all of these things, and they are saying I'm expanding my liberties to try to reach people. That's a very, it's called, the technical term that some use is contextualization. Paul was saying just the opposite. He was saying, I curtail my liberties not to be an offense so that I might reach people. But this whole passage has been turned on its head in major ways today by Christians and some very well-meaning Christians, committed Christians. But they've twisted it to the exact opposite that this passage is teaching just expand your liberties to reach more people. When Paul was saying, I limit my liberties to not be an offense so I can reach more people. So that's what chapter 9 is all about. In chapter 10, Paul corrects a possible misunderstanding related to his teaching about eating food offered to idols. He has already said in, in chapter 8 that it's okay to buy and eat meat offered to idols because an idol is really nothing. It's just a piece of wood. But Paul didn't want the church to think that it was okay to participate in the religious feasts at these pagan temples because to do so would be to worship demons. And it's so fascinating to me how Paul draws this line. You want to eat meat offered to idols? No problem. No big deal. You want to go to the ceremony inside where they offer the meat to the idols and have a feast? Absolutely not. You're worshiping demons. So he says in chapter 10 verse 20, he says, Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. What a thinker Paul was. He could draw the lines exactly where they needed to be drawn. You want to buy meat offered to idols out on the street front, out in the marketplace? No big deal. An idol is nothing. You want to go in there where they do that and eat the meat in the part of the feast? Absolutely not. You're worshiping demons. That's where he drew the line. To buy meat offered to idols, one thing. To participate in the religious feasts honoring false gods is altogether different. And that's what Paul makes clear in chapter 10. In chapter 11, he deals with the subject of orderliness in public worship. Specifically, he deals with two subjects. Number one, he discusses women wearing some kind of head covering when they were to participate in the congregational prayer, leading in that or a prophetic proclamation of God's word. Since those functions by God's design are to be carried out by men, on rare occasions when women would do those things, Paul instructs them to wear some kind of head covering to symbolize their submission to God's ordained pattern of male leadership in the church. It's the first issue he deals with in chapter 11. Secondly, he discusses orderliness when it comes to the Lord's table. Some were partaking of the Lord's table, participating of the Lord's table, in a very disrespectful manner, so that issue needed to be addressed. Paul says in chapter 11, verse 27, Therefore who, he, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So those issues of public worship and and propriety and public worship are addressed in chapter 11. As we move into chapter 12, we come to the section which Paul discusses the issue of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were evidently being influenced by what went on in the worship gatherings of the pagan temples in their city. We know again from historical records that people would whip themselves into an emotional frenzy or even a demonic frenzy and lose control. And it was so bad in Corinth that that it seems that some of the people had brought this kind of thing into their church and were actually standing up and saying, Jesus is accursed. Maybe that doesn't sound strong enough for you to really know what they were saying. Jesus, be damned. Or to say it another way, Jesus, go to hell. And they didn't even know what they were saying. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. He's referring to their practices in these pagan religions of whipping yourself into a frenzy, losing control, saying things you don't even know what you're saying. And then he gives an example, verse 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, anathema, damned. And no one can say Jesus is his Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So that's what was happening in this church. Therefore in chapters 12 through 14, Paul gave detailed instructions about spiritual gifts and their purpose. He explained that the spirit is the one who determines who gets what gifts, not people. We can't demand those gifts. He explained that all Christians have already been experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit because it is that which places us in the body of Christ. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. By the way, these are the very issues that some Christians still don't understand today. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, what it is, what it isn't. How spiritual gifts should function. In chapter 13, Paul explained that all spiritual gifts in ministry should be carried out in the context of love for others, not a focus on self. In chapter 14, he explained that the goal of spiritual gifts is not self-glorification, but rather the building up of others in the body of Christ. He says in chapter 14, verse 12, he says, Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. That should be your focus. He says almost the same thing down in verse 26. He says, how is it then, brother, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Listen, let all things be done for edification. The spiritual gifts were not given for a for self-glorification or so that the church can have a spiritual free-for-all. Paul says in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. And this was not happening In the church at Corinth. Then, chapter 15 turns a corner. In this chapter, Paul discusses the issue of bodily resurrection. You see, to the Greek way of thinking, bodily resurrection was a disdainful concept. The Greeks believed that the ultimate experience was to be released from your body. So, this probably confused the Corinthians, and Paul explains to them that God's plan is to raise our bodies in a perfect, glorified condition. Our new bodies won't be the same as the ones we have now, which are characterized by weakness and limitation. He says to them in verse 51 of chapter 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? There is a future resurrection of the body says Paul throughout this 15th chapter. And then in the early verses of the, of the 16th chapter, Paul gave the church some instructions about their giving, and then he closes out the letter with some final exhortations and greetings. Notice how he closes the letter. Chapter 16, verse 13, he says, Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. In fact, love is so important that last exhortation there. Look at what Paul says down in verse 22. This is a rather strong verse. He says if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema, let him be damned. If anyone doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, then that person will be destroyed. And then Paul adds something to which we can all relate when he says right there at the end of verse 22, 22, O Lord, come. Maranatha. O Lord, come. It's the cry of the heart of God's people. Has been, always will be until our Lord comes. It's a great way to end, as Paul then says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And thus Paul concludes his strong, his confrontive letter to the Corinthians. But as their spiritual parent, he knew what they needed to hear. He said it in a straightforward manner, a direct manner, a confrontive manner, but not lacking love. It's a great, a tremendous example of a spiritual parent giving instruction, reproof, correction to those who are a spiritual children. And it's, it's wonderful that, the, that the, the Lord has preserved this letter for us, because as I said earlier, way back at the beginning, this is one of the most practical letters in the New Testament. It just speaks to issues that are in the lives of God's people and have been down through the centuries. Tremendous letter, and we would do well to digest its content. Let's close together in prayer. Father, as we think about the letter to the church at Corinth, we're thankful for it in the sense that we're thankful for its instruction and for its correction and for its reproof and for its rebuke, but we're not really thankful for all the, the bad things that were going on in the church. And certainly it reminds us of just the condition of the church today in general. So many of these things still Surely, grieve your heart, Lord, when you see your church unwilling to address issues that need to be addressed, unwilling to um, take stands where stands need to be taken, unwilling to have a, an accurate perspective on your truth in whatever the areas happen to be the, the doctrine of bodily resurrection, or spiritual gifts, or marriage, or, or whatever it is. But we are thankful that in your own sovereign plan, you saw fit to preserve this letter. Because it does instruct us. It does reprove us. It does rebuke us where we need to be rebuked. So we are thankful. May we learn from it. May we learn from the wrong choices, the wrong activities of the Corinthian church. And may we learn from the positive things contained therein. And may our hearts join with Paul's exclamation. O Lord, come. Maranatha. O Lord, come. And until you do, Lord, may we be true and faithful to you as your people individually and as your church. We pray together in the precious and matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.